Well, good evening um, and a welcome to you as we settle in this evening for uh, what I think will be a revealing conversation here at the University of Sydney's Messel Theatre here in the Sydney Nanoscience Hub. Hello, my name is Dan Gaffney, I'm your host and before I say more, let me acknowledge and pay respect to the original people of this place, uh, the traditional owners of the land we're meeting on, which is the land of the Gadigal clan of the Aora Nation. The University of Sydney is built on their ancestral lands. So as we engage and learn from each other tonight, let's pay respect to the wisdom and to the stories that are embedded here in Aboriginal custodianship of country. Uh, this evening, Professor Cheryl Jones will speak about childhood infectious diseases, protecting kids from the cradle to the mosh pit. Professor Jones is a world-renowned clinician scientist in paediatric infectious diseases, and she has several strings to her bow. Uh, Cheryl is Professor of Paediatrics and Child Health and Deputy Dean of Education uh, at Sydney Medical School. She also heads the Centre for Perinatal and Emerging Infectious uh, infections research at the Marie Bashir Institute for Infectious Diseases and Biosecurity. She's also a paediatric infectious diseases specialist at the Children's Hospital Westmead and is president of the Australasian Society for Infectious Diseases. Her research interests include surveillance and prevention of mother to child transmission of viruses, the study of emerging paediatric central nervous system infections and the treatment of infections in newborns. Uh, after Cheryl's presentation, we will take questions from you and from people following tonight on Twitter, more of which in a moment. Uh, for brief context before Cheryl's presentation, it's important to recognise that childhood infectious diseases are no longer a common cause of death in Australia, but they are still the commonest reason for parents to take their child to the doctor. To meet this challenge, we're fortunate to have vaccines against a number of serious infectious diseases, including uh, measles, mumps, rubella, chickenpox, whooping cough, and the bacteria that cause brain infections, serious ones such as the meningococcus uh, or pneumococcus. Professor Jones will speak to these threats and importantly, she'll talk about what parents and caregivers can do to prevent these and other childhood infectious diseases. She'll also speak about several lines of research She's leading here at the University of Sydney and at the Marie Bashir Institute for Infectious Diseases. So a few rules of engagement for tonight. As I mentioned, we will take questions from the room at the end of Cheryl's presentation. And to ask a question, all you need to do is to raise your hand and we'll get a microphone to you. We've got two microphones in the room. Uh, we'll also take questions, if we can, from people who are following on Twitter. Uh, if you have questions or comments, uh, put them on Twitter and use the hashtag, hashtag SIDHealth. Uh, and please, if you would, ask questions only. No unsolicited speeches. Uh, and please avoid asking for personal health advice. Um, we won't be diagnosing or curing or solving health issues tonight. Um, also, if you wanted to log into the Wi-Fi if you need it, see the details on the screen there. A reminder also that tonight's forum is being audio recorded by Sydney Ideas uh, for your listening pleasure in the days to come. Uh, you can find all the Sydney Ideas podcasts at the address uh, on the screen. So perhaps to get a quick snapshot of who's in the room tonight, um, would you please raise your hand if you have a personal connection to this issue? Uh, you might be a parent, a grandparent, uh, a teacher, a child carer. Uh, any of the above, and also perhaps if uh, you're here in some professional capacity, you may be clinician, researcher, teacher. Thank you. So I've got a lot of professional people here interested in the topic. Thank you. So without further ado, let me invite Cheryl to the podium. Thank you. Thank you for coming on a, what's turning out to be a cold Wednesday evening. Um, I'm just going to take you through a, uh, a number of topics about how um, common infectious diseases are, um, how to prevent them, some of our areas of research, uh, and then some future challenges that we have. Um, I also would like to acknowledge our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander elders, past and present, and particularly those of the Gadigal people. 
So how important are childhood infections? How do you get them? What are some important and or common infections at different ages, particularly in the mother-to-child transmission, congenital infections or newborn infants? And in older infants and children, I'm not going to speak so much about adolescent infections. And importantly, how do we protect against them? I'm going to finish off with just a comment about re-emergence of neglected tropical diseases, even in Australia. So how important are infections? Well, what about a global perspective? There's been a lot of work uh, recently collecting data from countries around the world to measure the burden of diseases, not only infectious diseases, but also non-communicable diseases. By that, I mean cardiovascular disease, obesity, diabetes. And as you can see, this is the most recent publication about causes of death over the periods of time back from 1990 to 2013. And on the uh, y-axis is years of life lost. And as you can see, infectious diseases are this group here. There's been a gradual downward trend in overall burden of disease, but particularly from those caused by infectious diseases. And that's when we combine all age groups together. But the death from infection varies both by the age and by the region. So when we also looked at, well, when the investigators looked at causes of death in children less than one month, uh, death rates, again, you can see by region, and Australasia is down here, and uh, again, we've got the death rate per 100,000. As you can see, depending on the region, the burden of infectious diseases deaths here varies, and it's very small in countries uh, that are developed, such as Western Europe, Australasia, but in low- and middle-income countries, it's a greater burden of disease. And those types of infection, again, vary from the first month of life to those that are less than five years of age. And again, you can see Australia is here, and in Australia, it's these other non-infectious causes of disease, drowning, injuries, for example, Whereas in other parts of the world, in low- and middle-income countries such as South Asia, in parts of Africa, infectious diseases are still very important. And what sorts of infections are they? They are pneumonia or chest infections, the diarrheal diseases, particularly those caused by rotavirus, HIV-AIDS passed from mother to baby and the babies are succumbing to that infection or complications from that infection, Measles and other vaccine-preventable diseases in countries where immunisation programs don't exist or not well implemented, and also some tropical infectious diseases like malaria. So what's the situation in Australia? As Dan mentioned, infections aren't a common cause of death, even in children. In the first month of life, in fact, they only comprise 4% of deaths. They are a significant cause in the next group up to a year of age, but again, beyond that age, they're not a common cause of death. But they are an important reason why we take our children to seek health care from a general practitioner, from a hospital outpatient, or even from the pharmacist. And importantly, they also have other effects that we don't fully have quantified. Uh, as caregivers, we often have to ourselves take days off work when our children get infected or, and then take further days off work when we get the cold that they're given to us. And that has significant socioeconomic costs as well. But another idea I want to leave you with is that, in fact, although uh, not a common cause of death, they are actually an important cause of disability that we actually probably under-recognise. So how do children get infected? This varies, again, from the age of the child. Obviously, the developing fetus can get infected from maternal infections, and we call those infections intrauterine infections or congenital infections. They can be acquired across the placenta or as an ascending infection. You can also get infections uh, in the newborn infant by passage through an infected birth canal, and herpes simplex virus or genital herpes is one of the commonest causes there. But importantly, newborn babies can get infections after birth, most commonly from a caregiver, sometimes also from breast milk, very rarely. 
When you have an older infant or a child, the commonest causes of infection or source of infection are from their hands and from transmission of respiratory viruses, as you can see here. More less commonly, we're obviously in a school setting or even from families, and as we all know, there's, uh, when one person brings infection into the family, particularly a young child, then we all wait our turn to have it. But importantly also, food can be another source of infection, and particularly depending on our food preparation, particularly how well we cook our foods and how well we wash our salads. But also in a, in a um, affluent country like Australia, there's other causes, such as air travel. Increasingly, we travel either when we're pregnant or with our young children and either return to Australia, and that can be an important cause of infection. Common uh, swimming pools, other areas can be a cause. Animal exposure can sometimes be a cause, particularly in a rural or regional setting. Insects can be a cause, transmitting a number of infections, particularly viruses. In the developing or low-middle-income countries, where there's not clean water, obviously this is another very important cause of infection. And then we get to adolescence. As a parent of two adolescents, it's a challenging time. And this is obviously a time for increased uh, risk-taking behaviours, some of which can be associated with infections. Uh, close contact with a partner, sometimes sexual, sometimes not. Uh, and things such as tattooing can expose them to bloodborne viruses, sexually transmitted infections, apart from all the other exposures that we all have. So I'm now going to talk about some infections in that fetus and newborn period. I've particularly selected ones that are either topical or we're finding some new information about. There's many, many infections, though, that are important in this period, and if I spent time talking about them all, we'd be here till quite late tonight. So I've only selected a few. The human parechovirus is a virus that's actually probably been around for some time, but because of our new tests that are available with our molecular uh, skills to actually look at the genome of viruses, we understand more about this virus and we've reclassified it and recognised it better in the last uh, decade. And this virus in particular can cause serious infections in young infants. Why we're interested in this in Australia is because in late 2013, early 2014, we had one of the largest reported outbreaks of this infection in young infants starting in Sydney. At that time, we had over 100 infants who were admitted to hospital, uh, some with very severe brain disease. We've had further outbreaks again uh, about late 2015, early 2016, perhaps not quite as large. So what did these babies experience? Well, firstly, they had fevers. They were very irritable, uh, a cry that was not like I'm hungry or I'm tired. This was a baby in pain and distress. They had a pattern of a rash that was quite bright red. They had other symptoms too involving their brain sometimes with seizures. Sometimes they had, were shocked or their blood pressure was low. Many required going to intensive care. Many had involvement of their gastrointestinal system. Their tummy was bloated, their liver was involved. And we called them the hot, red, angry babies. And my colleague, Alex Katami, and other uh, clinicians from around the city described this uh, in an international journal. But one very important thing was that some of these babies on brain imaging, this is a magnetic resonance imaging scan of the brain, showed areas of inflammation of what we call the white matter. And this was quite concerning about possible long-term effects. So Dr Philip Britton, who is just about to complete his PhD uh, with myself and Robert Boy at the Marie Bashir Institute, uh, amongst, with a number of collaborators, including Dr Karen Walker, who's in the audience today, uh, and Dr Hattie Smithashidi, was interested in looking at the consequences of this severe brain infection with parechovirus. What he did, we have a study that I'll describe a bit later where we're looking at children with any form of severe brain infection who get admitted to hospital around the country 
We call that the ACE study or Australian Childhood Encephalitis Study. And he looked specifically at those children who had, were admitted to hospital with this particular virus, parechovirus. Some important features were that in this particular group of children, those with a very severe brain disease were often the very young infants, and I'm talking in the first weeks of life. They were often babies who had been born preterm. In our small series, they were more likely to be female. But importantly also, when we examined their spinal fluid, they didn't have a lot of white cells or pus, but we did detect the virus. The MRI, that brain scan, the magnetic resonance imaging scan, was also abnormal. And this was showing us patterns, again involving what we call the white matter of the brain, that's suggesting a toxic injury. The other important thing was it was in an area that was suggesting in the future there may be problems with these babies' motor development. Another very important finding was that the common test we do in young babies because they have that soft spot, the fontanelle, is we do something called a head ultrasound. It's an echo scan of their brain and it's easy to do because their brain bone hasn't covered up in the first months of life. The head ultrasounds were normal and so a lot of clinicians were doing head ultrasounds and were being falsely reassured. So we started a follow-up study of not only these infants who had been born in New South Wales in our, the two big children's hospitals in Sydney at Ranwick and at uh, Westmead, in addition to the children we'd identified through this national study, the ACE study. We started off by doing a series of developmental questionnaires by phone at 12 months. And without showing you all of the information, part of that's been published already in, in paediatrics, our findings were that a high proportion of these infants had some level of concern, particularly with their motor skills at 12 months of age. What this tells us is that we need to be following these babies up and we want to do this at three years, particularly so that we know, is this a really uh, valid, sustained observation when we do very rigorous developmental screening? And also then, what do we need to do to detect this early and what do we need to do to prevent it? In terms of early detection, Dr. Hayley Smith-Sheedy, who's in the audience, is going to be doing some work looking at a tool called general movements. It's a fantastic tool where families can record their movements of their baby using their smartphone, hopefully not one that's burning, um, with a camera, and then send that to the investigators. And there's a way to screen that for some early suggestions of motor problems uh, and developmental problems when they're older, including cerebral palsy. And she's asking the question with Cathy Morgan and others at the Cerebral Palsy Alliance about could this pick up some early changes related to parechovirus? The other thing we want to do is to do some studies about reducing that brain inflammation in those first weeks of life to see can we prevent any long-term consequences. So I'm going to talk now about Zika virus, not because it's common in Australia, but because it's been in the news. But it's an important virus which we get a lot of lessons from. So this particular virus is a very small virus called a flavivirus. It's usually transmitted by mosquitoes, particularly the yellow fever mosquito, Aedes aegypti. Uh, it generally doesn't cause any symptoms. In about four out of five people, they would never know they've had the disease. About one out of five may have some mild illnesses, particularly a fever, red eyes, headaches and joint pain, and sometimes a rash. We know that the virus can be in our bloodstream after we've been infected for about a week. Uh, we've recently learned that it also can be in genital secretions, particularly semen, for potentially a couple of weeks, maybe longer. And why is that important? Well, as you'd all be aware, that there has been uh, an association between this virus and what we call microcephaly, micro-small cephaly head. This was first observed uh, as a phenomenon in Brazil late last year and what they suddenly observed was, well, over a period of time, was microcephaly generally in the population is a fairly uncommon observation. 
but they were observing 25 times greater the frequency in their newborn babies than had been previously observed. Now, part of the issue is that how do you, different people were measuring the head differently and also there were many causes of microcephaly, so they didn't know what the cause was, but they were having this Zika virus outbreak at the same time. To cut a long story short, the evidence got stronger and stronger, and so that the World Health Organization Director General, Dr. Margaret Chan, on the 1st of February this year, made this a public health emergency. So what was that evidence? Well, over time, apart from just saying we've seen microcephaly, we've seen a Zika virus outbreak, we had to then see, could this be the cause? And this came out over time, and there's still emerging information. Importantly, for the first time, we recognised that this virus can actually infect brain tissue. And not only that, it can cause damage when it does it. It can also cause placental damage and cross the placenta from the mother to the fetus. In mice, it's been recently shown that if you infect a mouse, there will be abnormalities in the fetus. So while we haven't proven all of what we call Cox postulates, the evidence is now very, very strong. And also when there was an outbreak in French Polynesia uh, about four or five years ago, when they went back and looked over that period of time, how many babies did they have with Zika virus? There was an increase and they were able to show that Again, it was associated in time with this Zika virus outbreak. And you will be hearing uh, the areas where this, this mosquito is available, there's been an increasing recognition and spread. So this is really a global disease that can spread by planes. Uh, people, what has to happen is that you have to have the right mosquito and you have to have someone with Zika virus in your bloodstream. Most recently, this was Singapore. Now, obviously, the question that everyone wants to know is, what about Australia? Well, I'll refer to my colleague, Dr Cameron Webb, who is a mosquito expert and entomologist at Westmead Hospital and part of the Marie Bashir Institute. And the information is, firstly, that that particular type of mosquito is only found in the very northern tip of uh, North Queensland and some part of central Queensland. The other good news for Australia is that there is a very strong mosquito surveillance program. The virus that we've been all very worried about entering Australia is something called dengue virus that can cause severe um, so shock, brain inflammation, fever, very devastating disease. So we watch our mosquitoes very closely and we've been now looking for Zika virus. What local outbreaks would require, again, is that someone who has Zika virus in their bloodstream, so that week after they've been infected, is in that area in Australia, in the northern tip, and they get bitten by one of these mosquitoes. Obviously, um, we, we are seeing people who've been to these areas, and this uh, area of spread is increasing, who've been infected and are returning to Australia with symptoms, and we're testing that. One of the very important things is about mosquito protection. But also importantly, there is very clear travel advice about pregnant women, uh, about reconsidering travelling to an infected area. But if you are travelling to an infected area, about important mosquito protection. And also about people who are returning travellers, about protecting from sexual transmission when they return. So what are some other important infections? Cytomegalovirus. Hands up in the room who've heard of this virus. That's good. <laughs> well, many people haven't. And this virus, when people ask me, and I would get rolled out to every ABC radio and television to talk about Zika virus, and I have to say, but in Australia, the virus that is causing problems is CMV, and no one wants to talk about it. So cytomegalovirus, the CMV, when it's passed from the... Uh, pregnant woman to the developing fetus can affect that baby's development and cause significant birth defects. In the USA alone, they've shown that this is more common than Down syndrome, than fetal alcohol syndrome, than HIV AIDS. What we know is that about one in 10 babies that get infected 
will have what we call symptoms of birth. And this little babe shows many of them. Those black lines are their very big liver and spleen. They've got the yellow jaundice and those eyeglasses are because they're having phototherapy. They may be jaundiced. Their tummy is very blown up. The other 90% won't have any evidence of the infection on a quick examination at birth. When we're now doing these newborn screening tests, though, one in 10 of them uh, may have a hearing problem. But previously, that wasn't picked up. Now, my colleague, Dr Pam Palisantrin at uh, the Children's Hospital at Randwick and Dr Bill Rawlinson have been trying to estimate how common is CMV, congenital CMV in Australia? From a number of their studies, they believe that only six out of every thousand babies born have the infection. From our studies across the country, we're really only recognising, however, probably about a tenth of those. They've done some figures which I won't go through here, but approximately, by their estimates, about 350 360 babies are being born each year which will have long-term permanent sequelae problems from CMV and we're not recognising many of these. Dr Hayley Smithers-Sheedy and a number of colleagues at the Cerebral Palsy Alliance has done some work to say, well, is CMV contributing to um, to cerebral palsy? To cut a long story short, She's done a number of studies, but most recently she has gone back and, with people's consent, looked at the newborn screening cards that get kept until you're 18 years of age for evidence of the viral DNA. Now, if it's present, it suggests intrauterine infection. If it's not there, it doesn't rule it out. To cut a long story short, she found a very large proportion, so 9.6%, which when you consider in our regular community, it's only 0.6%, had this virus DNA in the newborn screening card. Now that doesn't mean that it's just a simple cause of cerebral palsy. Uh, Haley and others will tell you that there are multiple factors to get cerebral palsy, but it's certainly a strong association and we need to look into that more. What are some other important infections? Whooping cough. This is a, far, a bacteria, Bordetella pertussis. It's important because it can be fatal in young infants. In New South Wales alone, after the last four or five years, we've had four deaths. Classically, whooping cough gives you what we call a paroxysm, so a long run of cough, and the hoop comes from getting a breath at the end. There's also a strong association with vomiting. But in newborn babies, Whooping cough doesn't appear like that. In fact, sometimes they just stop breathing, turn blue, what we call apnea, and have a runny nose. And if you've been immunised against whooping cough, you may also not show the classic signs, but just have a dry, persistent cough when you get infected. There are vaccines available, but they don't protect the infant until approximately the second dose when they're four months of age. There's been a lot of work of how do we get that protection earlier? One of the answers has been to try and what we call cocoon the baby, so protect the family, including the mother. And to that end, recently there's been recommendations based from a lot of evidence from around the world, including Australia, to immunise in the last trimester of pregnancy so that mum is passing her protective antibody to that newborn baby. Another vaccine-preventable disease that we rarely see in Australia now is something called rubella virus. Actually, this association between this virus and the problems that, that you get from it uh, were first recognised by Dr Norman Gregg, who was an ophthalmologist who graduated from Sydney Uni. Congenital rubella, so rubella passed from the, um, across to the developing fetus can cause brain problems, heart defects and cataracts and also hearing loss as well. We've been doing surveillance uh, since 1993 through the Australian Paediatric Surveillance Unit. We now rarely see it. And when we do, these infants who have congenital rubella are infants who are either born to mothers who were never immunised because they were born overseas. Dr Gulam Kandika is a postdoctoral fellow working with ourselves at Marie Bashir and the Cerebral Palsy Alliance. And he's been doing a lot of work in developing countries, Bangladesh, Indonesia, to say, well, what about the 
prevention of disability from infections in these countries. For example, from vaccine-preventable diseases like congenital rubella, where the immunisation is not effective. This is showing him he's also done some other wonderful work about getting wheelchairs through a wonderful organisation called Wheelchairs for Kids to children in Bangladesh. You have these big um, mountain bike wheels so they can get over unmade roads. So these are some very important causes and show us the burden of disease that happens when we don't have strong immunisation programs. Now I've put this slide up about herpes in the baby because this was one of the original areas that I did when I did my PhD in Boston many years ago and I'm known as the herpes queen. It's not a title that I carry outside this room but it's there. Herpes is a rare condition uh, in babies. We have about 10 babies born each year but it can be devastating. Even with our antiviral agents that are effective, we still have about two babies that die from this infection largely because they're not recognised each year, because it is so uncommon. Importantly, uh, we then have another two to three who have brain infections and have long-term problems from this virus. Most of it is passed from the infected birth canal, but a 10% can occur from the hands or lips of a caregiver. We still don't have a vaccine, but in surveillance it's important to allow us to try and raise awareness and to... Uh, have other strategies for prevention. So what about some other common childhood infections for the older children now, infants and school-aged children? The common cold. In a child, we know that they will have 5 to 10 colds. A normal child has 5 to 10 colds per year. An adult probably gets about two or three. There is a wide range of viruses, so these don't cause death, but they do cause a lot of... Um, loss from work and uh, other socio-economic effects that we don't measure. But when you have infections in the chest, pneumonia, that can be quite serious and it's one of the commonest reasons that children do get admitted to hospital these days. Viruses are more common, such as the influenza virus, other viruses, a long list, RSV, metanumavirus, parainfluenza virus are there. There's also some bacteria, uh, the strep pneumococcus, Staphylococcus, for example, Haemophilus influenzae, that can cause very serious disease. Importantly, uh, for both the common cold, uh, bacteria are the only thing that antibiotics work against. They do not work against viruses. Are these important? Well, influenza, we know, has still got a high rate of hospitalisations in children. Some of them cause the brain infections. We know that from our surveillance studies, and some children die. There is a vaccine available, particularly to those that are um, at risk. Gastro. So I haven't shown you a photo of the end effects, but we all know it well. There's a number of viruses that cause this. You would have recently heard about this norovirus. It's called the winter flu, and if you've had it, it's dreadful. It's a very quick onset, mostly with severe vomiting, sometimes diarrhoea, and then it only lasts for a couple of days, but it's nasty and it spreads like wildfire through a family, through camps, through schools. Rotavirus is another virus, particularly in young babies, uh, and that can make them very dehydrated because they lose a lot of water. We now have a vaccine against that. Bacteria, often from foods, though, is another important cause, the Salmonella campylobacter. Importantly, the way to protect against these is hand washing, and for some causes, vaccination. Brain infections, uncommon but severe because of the consequences and occasionally death. We've had a lot of bacteria causing these, the pneumococcus, meningococcus, and what we used to call type B, Haemophilus influenzae or HIV. We actually now have vaccines against all of these, so the rate is a lot less. This is a um, graph of uh, meningitis from HIV since the introduction of vaccines. And when I was a young trainee in paediatrics, I would frequently have to look after these children in ICU. We just don't see it as much. It still occurs, but not as commonly. There are some types that the vaccines don't cover. Meningococcus not only causes brain infections, it can also cause what we call shock or just very severe loss of your blood volume. And that can have very severe consequences, including uh, 
death of your digits and losing digits and limbs. It can also cause, this is a very common rash, and also cause just isolated brain infection with long-term problems. Again, it's an uncommon infection, but we do have outbreaks. And recently in New South Wales, uh, there were five new cases. There are a number of different types of uh, meningococcus, of which about five we have vaccines available, and these are the commonest types. Most importantly, type C, we can vaccinate against in our schedule. These other types, A, Y, A, W, Y, C, there's a, a vaccine available if you're travelling or an older child. B is newly available and probably the commonest type in Australia in young children, and that's currently just been available privately. It's not on the schedule yet. This recent outbreak in New South Wales, interestingly, was this type W, and the government are thinking about what they need to do to address that. What about some other vaccine-preventable diseases? Measles. Why is it important? It's highly contagious, it can be fatal, and complications are common. Australia has had a very strong immunisation program and theoretically are measles-free, and you can see this is again some of the graphs of the different introductions of the measles program. However, we still have pockets of outbreaks, again recently in New South Wales, when um, there is enough people who are not immunised against infection and someone comes in with it. Prevention. The most important way to prevent against infection is very careful hand hygiene and monitoring our capacity when we sneeze or have a cold, such as this little one here. That is one of the strongest ways to prevent infection. Importantly, also taking care when we prepare our foods, the way we cook it, the way we wash our raw vegetables. Travel health. Everyone should actually visit this Smart Traveller site some months before you're travelling overseas just to look at infectious risks. For example, a lot of the vaccine-preventable disease, I mean, sorry, the mosquito-borne infections, a lot of this can be avoided by important tips about how to prevent being bitten by mosquitoes. That Zika virus or dengue virus mosquito actually is a daytime biter, so that piece of information you need to know. But there's also other information about some immunisations that you um, can have prior to travelling that are specific for, for infections, yellow fever, Japanese encephalitis virus, in some tropical diseases. And sometimes you need to take um, antimicrobial agents for, say, prevention against malaria particularly also if you're pregnant. That's important to get a travel advice there. I haven't talked about superbugs. These are bugs that don't, uh, antibiotics don't work against, but I did want to give a message. One important thing is that antibiotics don't work on viruses. These are a really precious resource. They're like uh, fossil fuel, and we need to protect them, and we need to use our antibiotics wisely, not for common colds, if you get given a script by a doctor, question, are they, is this really necessary? If you do need it, take it for as long as you've been told to do and try and also do the other things to avoid getting the infections in the first place. Immunisations, why do we give them? We're trying to stop the disease or death from the infection. We're trying to generate long-lasting uh, immunity in the individual and to limit spread. I'm not going to go through all of the schedule that's available. I did want to mention a little bit about preventing congenital infections, so preventing infections in the mother. Again, there are a number of things you can do. Firstly, hand hygiene, particularly against that cytomegalovirus, and or sharing uh, saliva with your young toddlers from um, dummies, pacifiers and spoons. If you're travelling when you're pregnant, be careful. Some areas that you may not want to go to, but look and see the best way to protect yourself. Some infections we can screen ahead of time, but not all. Some we can prevent by vaccination, particularly before pregnancy. So again, the rubella, if you've not met it, or uh, chickenpox virus, varicella. During pregnancy, particularly, you can receive the influenza vaccine or the whooping cough vaccine. And if you are travelling, look up that smart traveller site. A last thing. We need to understand 
uh, outbreaks from infection. So we need to do surveillance. The government does a lot of initiatives for this, looking at uh, antibiotic resistance, about travellers. There's a lot of laboratory notifications for what we call notifiable diseases. There's a lot of data recorded to see if there's any signals of outbreaks. We do the mosquito surveillance. We also have what we call sentinel chickens, where chickens around the country which get bitten by mosquitoes have some blood taken to see what infections they've met. But there are some gaps. Clinically, we have some important services in children. Two I'd like to mention. One is the Australian Paediatric Surveillance Unit run by Professor Elizabeth Elliott, where child health providers are asked to report every month if you've seen one of these list of infections. We've studied a few with them, including CMV and HSV, and fill out a de-identified questionnaire about that. But there's this other mechanism called PEDS, or Paediatric Enhanced Disease Surveillance. This is a very useful surveillance where we actively look for uh, particular syndromes in children uh, by looking for screening hospital admissions from nurses dedicated to do this and then taking a lot of information, uh, doing follow-up studies and taking specimens where required. We're actually just released a study about microcephaly in Australia using that mechanism. But the other thing we've done is this study I've alluded to, the Australian Childhood Encephalitis Study. Why do we even want to do this? Well, encephalitis, which is brain infection or inflammation, is a marker for new or emerging infectious diseases. Why children? Well, children are what we call our canary in the coal mine. They're often the first to reflect infections that are going around in our community. And Dr Philip Britton has uh, been running this study for the last three years as part of his PhD. The quick message is that this has shown to be an important marker of these emerging infections. I talked about the parecovirus. There's also been a very important baby infection, enterovirus. But also it's allowed us to see other effects from other important infections, particularly influenza. My last note is we've talked a lot about uh, infections that we know well in the developed community, but we still have neglected tropical diseases. These are diseases that are particularly in low and middle income countries, but actually some of them occur in the Northern Territory, particularly in our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities. And as one uh, journalist recently said, why are we having uh, children being still being blinded from trachoma in this country when we were eliminated from the rest of the country 100 years ago? So at that end, I just wanted to uh, acknowledge many people who have been involved in some of the studies here, from our parecovirus study, from our encephalitis study, all of our funders, and particularly our newly awarded NHMRC Centre for Research Excellence. Again, acknowledge the funders from the CMV Blood Spot Study and Dr Haley Smithers-Sheedy and all of the people involved with the Cerebral Palsy Alliance. Again, I wanted to mention some important parent groups, particularly associated with CMV, and my colleagues at the Australian Society for Infectious Diseases who put together this book, particularly Dr Pam Palisantrin with myself. And finally, also to acknowledge the National Centre for Immunisation Research and Surveillance and some of my colleagues there. This is a wonderful resource both for health professionals and for people in the community about the current topics in immunisation. Thank you. So we do have roving microphones. If you do have a question, now's a good time to put your hand up and we'll get a microphone or two to you. Um, Cheryl, while we're waiting for that, um, you said CMV is a serious uh, infection, um, 360 cases per year born, what, and, and yet it's little talked about and little known. Can you say a little bit more about that and why that might be so? So CMV, so it's CMV when it's passed across to the developing fetus. It's a virus that's very common in our community. Probably about 50 or 60% of it have met it by the time we're adults. For most of us, we don't even know we've been infected. It doesn't cause any problems. There are two times when it does cause problems. One is when it's passed across to the developing fetus. And the other is if you've got a problem with your immune system, such as you've got um, you're on chemotherapy or you have had HIV AIDS or an organ transplant then it's a virus that can cause problems. It comes from a family of viruses that live in our body for a long time and called the herpes virus family, and it flares up every now and again. 
The issue is for, for congenital CMV is that a lot of the babies don't have uh, signs when they're born. We don't have newborn screening for it in the country. And the reason for that is partly an argument about we don't have ways to prevent it, so why screen for it? I think there's emerging evidence, though, um, we're making a case for this, um, to say, well, actually, and this is why Haley is doing her work amongst others, we do actually think it's an important cause of disability and there are some things we can do early to at least attenuate that. The other is if we have a better handle on how common or important this is causing problems, then it allows us to make an argument for other strategies to try and prevent infection. But it isn't a virus that's well known and many of the families that come and see me or go to the clinic at um, Randwick uh, with you know, Professor Rawlinson and uh, Pam Halasantran, the families say, I've never heard of this virus. And here they are with a child who has deafness or some other problem, including cerebral palsy, and they're devastated. And mostly because they've never heard about this virus and they haven't been given the opportunity to think, well, what can I do? So Kate Daly and all of the people, she's up the back, hello, uh, from the Australian CMV Association are running a very strong campaign to get people aware of the virus. And so just simple things that can be done in pregnancy, careful hand washing and just being aware um, of how the virus can be acquired is important. Thank you. Um, Kate, did you want to share something about the campaign if we get a mic to you? Uh, no, just that, um... Microphone? Sorry, otherwise we won't pick you up <laughs> on the audio. Just that um, we're concentrating on education and awareness. We believe that if um, women are aware of CMV before they're pregnant, uh, there's strategies that they can take on board and minimise their risk by 50% of you know, contracting the virus in the first place. Um, and that's significant. So um, things like you know, checking your kids for snotty noses and you know, make, being more diligent and not kissing on the lips and um, a bit more, few more hugs and not sharing cups and things like that. Um, they're not that hard to do. We do it for SIDS and, you know, we keep the kids on their backs now and there's prevention measures for all sorts of things out there. We need to do the same thing for CMV. Uh, Cheryl, you said it's not screened for. Do you mean when women are pregnant it's not screened for? It's not... Well, it's not screened for in pregnancy. There's a lot of issues around that, partly related to um, the way to screen for it in pregnancy is to look for the antibodies, which are the proteins we make in response to infection. The tricky part is while the commonest or the highest risk for passing the virus across to the baby is for a woman who's having her first infection in pregnancy, women who've met the virus before, although the risk is lower, are also able to pass the virus across. So again, uh, screening for uh, infection is tricky to do with interpreting the results of these antibody tests, but also the argument will be, well, what is our intervention? If we don't have something that can be done to alter the course of the disease or alter the infection, then the reasons and the cost effectiveness uh, for screening is not there. Mm. But so, that may change. So primary prevention in the mother is is paramount really, is that right? Primary prevention in the mother is paramount and there's some work from around the country to suggest, uh, from overseas particularly, to suggest that it can be effective. We have a question. Thank you. Are kittens still important with CMV? So, um, not so much for CMV. Where kittens are important is a, a parasite called toxoplasmosis and um, there's actually been some work to say they're much maligned. It's actually, uh, because it's not the kittens themselves, in fact, it's actually their stools that can carry it and it's in the soil. So that's where handling kittens, not so much, but it's managing uh, careful hand washing, how you're handling mm. cat litter. But it's not CMV, it's this uh, infection called toxoplasmosis, which can also cause some similar problems to, to CMV mm. in terms of brain infections, hearing loss, eye problems, etc. Uh, another infection you haven't mentioned is group A strep infection. Of course, that's not a problem in Western people now, but you mentioned Aborigines. Would you like to have, make a comment on, on the infection in Aborigines in their, on their skin and uh, uh, causing um, acute nephritis and 
rheumatic fever in, in numbers far greater than the, the Western population. Absolutely. So um, there's been a lot of work, and that's been led by people, uh, my colleagues, uh, Professor Jonathan Carapetis, who's now over in Perth, and uh, people up in the Menzies in Northern Territory. Group A strip actually still is bubbling along, even in non-Aboriginal children, even in Sydney. It can cause some nasty diseases, but by far the commonest is it's a bacteria that we classically know causes um, not only throat infections, but also skin infections or impetigo. There's a lot of evidence that it's been very common in particularly uh, remote and regional Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities and also in the Pacific Islands and elsewhere as well. Uh, scabies is also seems to be partly related to that and some wonderful work just released or published by um, uh, Professor Andrew Steer from the Murdoch Children's in Melbourne together with um, Professor John Calder at UNSW has um, shown that even by preventing and managing scabies with a simple um, one-off treatment in Fiji has reduced the incidence of group A strep skin infections and they're hoping of um, the consequences of that, particularly the heart disease and the kidney disease. You're absolutely right, and that was partly, I guess, I only gave one example at the end, that um, there are some important infections that we've pretty much got in control in the rest of the community, but some parts of our community, particularly in remote, uh, remote rural indigenous populations, are still having infections that we thought we'd long since controlled. Okay, Cheryl, thanks for your talk. I'm here from a little bit of a different angle tonight. I'm actually a specialist insurance advisor. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to pick holes in a particular product that my profession offers advice in. So it's somewhat loaded, bear with me. Um, children's trauma products are available to my industry for um, children between the age of two and 18 next birthday. Two of the conditions that are listed as crisis events are bacterial meningitis and viral encephalitis. You mentioned that they're rare. Can you just tell me, given that age bracket, how rare? Like, honestly, yeah. what are the chances of someone between the age of 2 and 18 suffering from one um, of these conditions? Well, I'd say that they're uncommon. And we actually have... So, in terms of um, bacterial meningitis, um, I guess I'm just trying to add them all up because it's all by the different types of bacteria. Um, there's probably, for, for the meningococcus, there's probably, you know, maybe um, in that age group, say, you know, 20 across New South Wales, I mean, across the country a year, but more if you take adults as well. If you times that by all the different types, less for pneumococcus, less for Hib, um, uh, my guesstimate would be it's probably about 50, 100 cases a year. I couldn't put that at the top of my head in terms of per 100,000. Now, viral encephalitis, we've only just, because of this study, and it's not yet published, um, about um, Australian uh, viral encephalitis, um, which is a long list of causes, particularly now Pareco and Enterovirus, um, you know, well, I'd say since 2013, I'm just trying to break it down in the age group, since 2013, we've actually had 400 children across the country that have had from zero to 14 that have had encephalitis of some form. About a third of those are infectious, um, so about 150, 170, um, of which, you know, the, probably the majority of those would be viral. Um, so I'm not able to, off the top of my head, give you that a, a per 100,000 population in that age bracket. It's uncommon, but if you put them all together per cause, it's not insignificant. And the other important issue is that they rarely cause death. Some of them still do, enterovirus, some influenza cause death uh, from brain infections, but it's a disability they cause, and that's what we're actually mapping out. And in fact, Phil's study, um, together with Haley and Karen and others, is actually trying to quantify that because it's actually an unrecognised burden of disability. And from meningococcus, you know, you saw some of the um, lost limbs and hearing loss and problems with thinking and seizures that can come from when the brain has been inflamed. So the disability can be significant.
Questions? Microphone. While we're waiting, uh, we had a question from um, uh, Julie Lisk on Twitter. Oh. She asked, uh, when should our kids stay away from childcare? Simple question, probably a big answer. Yeah, no, it is. So I guess the quick answer is um, clearly if you've got a, um, a diarrheal illness or um, a, a, even a common cold where there's a lot of snot or something where your doctor has said that there are clear types of infectious diseases where we know you can be infectious for a certain period, the chicken pox, um, to give an example, uh, where you should not go to childcare because that could transmit it. I guess diarrheal illnesses is probably one of the biggest things, but there's a list of others as well. Whooping cough, so coughing illnesses is another. Good. Thank you. Okay, I just in uh, in the antenatal clinic, mm. group B strep is very strictly monitored, but not group A strep. What? How much of a the difference in terms of causing a problem to the newborn. Why so is it group A is not that it's not being monitored? Um, so in terms of infections uh, that get passed uh, to the newborn baby, uh, so we call it neonatal sepsis. The bacteria that commonly cause this, as you say, are the group B strep. Um, and gram-negative, particularly the E. coli gram-negative. Part of the reason group B strep uh, is more common, passing across the babies, is that that commonly lives in the genital tract, okay, as opposed to group A strep, which is often in the throat, although it can be around you know, the bottom, the anal area as well. You can get group A strep infections uh, often in... Um, but it's often acquired after birth rather than through the birth process. So the reason we're screening for group B strep in pregnancy is because it's a very important cause of brain infection, meningitis in newborn babies. And it can either show up early on in life as a severe sepsis or as an isolated brain infection roughly about one to three months of age. We screen for it because we know if women are carrying that bacteria in their genital tract and we measure it usually by finding it in their urine, if we give them antibiotics around the time of delivery, that significantly reduces that early onset sepsis, that early onset infection. We still do have to be careful about that late onset infection. But when we've mapped out bacterial meningitis in those newborn babies by having this what we call antibiotic prophylaxis, that rate of those infections uh, and death and disability from those infections is significantly reduced. Questions? If you have a question, put your hand up, we'll get a mic to you. I was interested to see that uh, you said children have between five and ten colds per year and adults one to two. Um, why is that the case? Because it must seem like children are constantly snotty and coughing and carrying on from infectious diseases. So it is more common than you realise and, and often we'll get families come and see us in clinic and say, you know, I think my child, there's something wrong with their immune system and it's had five or six colds and, and it's actually quite surprising that it's that high. When you think about it, probably part of that relates to as much as we can try and teach them to wash their hands and not to rub their snot into their eyes and et cetera and how they eat and how they share saliva and snot and a lot of things with us and with each other, it can be quite hard to control, so that's probably part of it. The other thing too is that um, often when they go from that transition, you know, say the first time in daycare, the first time at school, um, they're getting exposed to a lot of new viruses they haven't met before. So probably those things are partly it. As a parent or a caregiver of a child who's going through those first times, you often then get re-exposed. So you then have a period of time yourself where you're feeling like, you're, off, you're probably getting up to that 7 to 10 as well. So parents of young children would, be, would have more, more commonly have colds than those without, because you said adults, only one to two on average. Yeah, look, that would be my impression. I can't say I've seen evidence about that, but I certainly know that from personal experience. And a cost to the economy? I mean, it must, must be massive when you say it's yeah. the commonest cause to take kids to the doctor. It is, and I don't think that's well measured. Um, one of the other important things, though, has been about... Um, 
use of antibiotics for the common cold. And again, you know, in terms of filling of prescriptions when it's probably not needed and the risks of antibiotic resistance, that's another important consequence as well. Questions? Don't be shy. Thank you. Um, your sage words on antibiotics are well taken, but um, what about the rise of antimicrobials and antibacterials in domestic and other products like that? What are your comments on that? Yeah, so there's been uh, just recently um, some recommendations from the um, American government, the CDC, Centre for Diseases Control. In, there is the issue with um, domestic products and antibacterial agents is a number of things. Firstly, the evidence that they actually are any better than simple hand washing with soap and water, or if you haven't got time, a quick alcohol product, just isn't there. They've been extensively tested in the setting of hospitals, obviously, where you need a high rate of hygiene, but they haven't been either regulated or tested for how effective they are in the domestic use. The second is this concern about they're not really necessary, could there be a risk of increasing antibiotic resistance? And theoretically, they could be. Again, we haven't had evidence that that occurs, but I think as a, um, as a and I'm saying this as uh, the Infectious Diseases Society, we don't think they're necessary. So the use of those products really can be confined to um, you know, the hospitals or the healthcare settings where you're really trying to get um, bacterial loads down very effectively with, with products that have been tested and shown to be effective, for example, when you're going into surgery or you're moving from patient to patient. In the home, soap and water or an alcohol-based product. I have two questions. My first one is about whooping cough. Is it important to have other family members vaccinated uh, apart from the mother. And my second question is your thoughts on the latest Facebook kind of announcement to eradicate all infectious diseases. So the first question is yes, um, <clears throat> uh, getting all family members protected and updated with their immunisation, particularly you know with our extended families. So the whooping cough vaccine of all the vaccines is one that the um, protection does tend to wear off. We tend to see it in our adolescents, so they again can be again uh, an important source of infection, but also in grandparents and the elderly, again our immunity is waned. So yes, if you've got a newborn baby coming into the house, it is uh, advised to actually update your immunisation status for the family. That's a good question. Now the other question is the Facebook um, about eradication of all infectious diseases. Um, I guess two things. One is I think that um, you know the only well the only infections we've really eradicated is smallpox, and you know arguably we're trying to do that for polio and rubella. So some of these vaccine preventable diseases isn't even an important strategy to uh, to try and do that for all infections. It's probably um, not the best use of either our time or our money. You know, there are many things we have to try and prevent. But clearly these... Um, smallpox is a really interesting example. Um, and our own Australian Frank Fenner, who's uh, uh, a recent professor who's recently died, uh, was at ANU and in Melbourne at the Walton Lyther Hall, was very important in that World Health Organisation eradication of smallpox. But smallpox lent itself to be... Uh, eradicated because for a couple of things. One is um, it caused a very clear pattern of infection and you could actually contain the infection by what we call ring containment. So it was very easy to, to detect and isolate outbreaks. It was still a pretty amazing achievement. They did this in the, sort of the, the Cold War era by getting collaboration in ways we've never seen since. Um, but it was a particular virus that would probably be an easy one to eradicate. Some others, like the CMV virus, we're probably having a hope, or herpes. Thank you. Uh, we, we in Australian Skeptics campaign for evidence-based medicine, of course, and we oppose groups such as the Australian Vaccination Network that 
spread mainly falsehoods. Um, but we often get inquiries from mothers or parents who'd like a source of reliable information that balances the risks of vaccination, small though they may be, against the benefits. Do you have a, a good website or a source of such information that could be in everyday terms that perhaps the average parent could understand, please? Absolutely. And I would refer you to uh, resources that are on, and I'm not sure if we can get my last slide up, but the National Centre for Immunisation Research, or NCIRS. There are some fantastic resources uh, for people in the community, for, for family practitioners to help people go through, and there's even decision aids. And Dr Julie Leesk, who is, a, uh, or Professor Julie Leesk, I should say, who works at the School of Public Health and with Immunisation Research, has done a lot of work in trying to um, give people information, decision aids that can help them think, well, what are the things I'm concerned about and what is the evidence for this? Thank you, Cheryl, for sharing uh, your time and your wisdom this evening. Um, thank you for being in conversation tonight on the subject of childhood infectious diseases, protecting kids from the cradle to the mosh pit. Folks, if you'd please put your hands together for our speaker, Cheryl Jones.